Hi, and welcome to Bottled Up. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome aboard. It's awesome to have you here, and we hope we don't scare you away. In episode 65, we're chatting with Anna. This is a little different to the other episodes we've covered in the past, which have been very focused on sharing the lived experience of men. Looking at our numbers, almost 40% of our listenership are women, and it's unsurprising. Women play an incredible role in the life of many men, as partners, daughters, sisters, and in so many other roles. And in particular, women's health gets overlooked. There's a myriad of factors behind that one, but it often boils down to a lack of funding and research, as well as the stigma attached. So... We hope that this conversation takes us one step closer to destigmatizing the space. We chat about Anna's background both in pharmacology and the masters that she's recently undertaken in public health. We chat about the morning after pill, understanding hormonal differences between men and women, endometriosis, which is a condition that affects more than one in 10 women, and the role that men can play in supporting women and much more. One thing to call out, though, is that Anna is not a medical professional, but rather someone who has an unrelenting passion about women's health and pushing dialogue in the space. We hope you take something away from the conversation just like we did. Enjoy. Anna, welcome to Bottled Up. Yeah, thanks for having me. Women play equally a very important role in the life of a lot of different men. Uh, whether it's your brother, a son, a husband, father, uh, whatever the relationship might be. So this topic and this conversation can go in many different ways, but very excited to have you and your expertise, Anna. And I'll probably front load by saying that, um, Anna, you're, you're obviously not a medical professional, but this is a space that you're very, very interested in and here to promote certain measures and certain standards, but it's very much up to the listener or the um, I guess the end person who's whoever listening in at the moment um, to sort of take on that advice and go seek professional help, go speak to a GP because they are the trained professional, but more or less these conversations will help push the dial in, in the area of women's health. So I might just throw a video. I know I might be putting you on the spot here, but um, for you, why is, why is this topic, you know, you know, also important for you? Yeah. So initially when I heard that you are a men's mental health podcast, I was also thinking I have this great interest in women's health but where what role would I play in this podcast but then thinking back to all these conversations I've had not just with women but Mm. with men I found that they're almost equally unaware of certain things surrounding women's health in the topics that we'll kind of touch on today and as you said men play such a massive role in women's lives so from you know fathers to brothers uncles partners even like in the in workplaces in academic places and we're so different you know mm-hmm. there's so much talk recently about how we're equal we should be given equal opportunities which is absolutely valid and i think we should go for that um but then we f- tend to forget how we are different in certain ways on a more i guess biological level or the way that we approach life just how we're naturally a bit more structured and i think that absolutely needs to be a conversation on that topic just so we understand women not only understand themselves but also that we all understand each other Mm. Um, and I guess my interest kind of began when I was younger I was experiencing all these kinds of problems my own you know women's health reproductive health and then I went into a sphere of health you know I got a bachelor of science that dealt with more like the physiology anatomy of things uh, and now I'm doing a more sociological perspective um, mm. with a public health degree, a master's of public health, which I haven't finished yet, but I'm finishing soon, hopefully. Mm. Um, and I'll do make sure that my studies are very women's health focused because it is a big area of interest for me. Um, mm. And yeah. so in the future, I would like to continue to kind of explore that and just to promote women's health more mm. than anything. Yeah, it's an important topic, and and I'll be honest and say that my knowledge in, in women's health is is very very limited, um, and I, I'm not too sure if that's a product of my environment when I was growing up. I mean, I was predominantly um, educated in a in an all boys school, um, and with most of my mates being 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 boys. Um, so yeah, it will be interesting to to have this conversation with you, uh, Anna, and 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 a question I had was just around sort of from a male's perspective, um, how do you see 
men improving their education on women's health? I mean, do you see it as a as a grassroots thing, or do you see it as a or do you see it as something else? I'll be a bit honest. I think that schools don't tackle the problem very well. Not necessarily to say it's the problem, but they don't approach it in the correct manner. A lot of it's very just anatomical, biological, exactly what's written in the textbook. And from my own studies that I've been doing, a lot of that information is actually very misleading. So just to give a very brief example, you would think, for example, that something like ovulation has to happen on day 14 of a woman's cycle, no ifs and buts around it. Around it. But then when you actually do some research, it could happen anywhere between like day seven and day 20. Like there's a massive range that can go in between. And of course, there are underlying pathologies behind it. But that's just to show you that like there's so much variation in women's health. And it's just very, very difficult to give it to such a young audience who barely understands what's happening. Then like it's puberty, like everything is like going crazy already. Um, So for men in particular... I think it's more so something that you have to understand through experience, through having female friends and seeing them as friends, not as a potential partner and just viewing and accepting them and viewing them, taking in their viewpoints, um, listening to them, not thinking that they're complaining or nagging, but like, oh, why are they constantly talking about, you know, stomach pains, you know, lower, lower abdominal pains all the time. Um, and just being accepting of that I think because I know quite a few men who are just like oh why do girls never stop talking about their periods you know it's the only thing they ever talk about but the thing is it's just such a prevalent and constant thought and worry on our minds it's just like oh it's coming I hate them and then it's like oh wait it's not coming am I pregnant like what's happening and so it's constantly in the kind of back burner yeah and so I think men they're not really exposed to it so just like yeah whatever and when there are sometimes it's a bit of uh why should I care or like you're nagging or like or you're complaining or something along those lines Mm. yeah are we like yeah I'm very I'm in a very similar boat to you Mank um uh before I entered sort of the relationship I'm in now with my partner my vernacular and vocab around um women's health is like was like non-existent um and actually just hearing about it more and and sort of being in that environment you sort of pick up on stuff but still i feel like there's still a lot more to learn and i think that's also by virtue of the lack of research that's taking place in the field um why we haven't heard so much why we haven't had so much education around it is because we just simply or you know whether it's a government level the research level whatever level it might be i guess the funding isn't there to keep promoting that research and that definitely needs to change because there's so much out there that is still yet to be learned. Um, and, uh, you know, as men, I think we often hear things around like, um, and this is completely wrong, like, um, oh, you know, she's on her period or, you know, she's cranky today or whatever it is. And I think we need to start tackling a lot of those phrases that get uh, put out. What you've mentioned in some of the calls that we've had, Anna, is how cyclical um, a, a woman's mood is you know, based on sort of where they are in the month and how they're feeling. And that can have a lot of repercussions and sort of implications on like other aspects of their life, whether it's sort of their weight, their mood, how they feel, even alcohol tolerance. I've heard there's a link there and also gum disease or like sort of the gums as well. Um, So that I'm feeling like that might be a good place to start just around, um, you know, obviously men, uh, men having much more of a constant sort of cycle or mood throughout the month, whereas women having a lot more cyclical or fluctuating mood. Would you be able to sort of explain, I guess, that world um, and also sort of how this flows into sort of the day-to-day life for women as well? Yes, I think a great place to start would be just to give a bit of a rundown on how a woman's cycle functions. And it's immensely complicated. There's, you know, many, many different hormones. But the way that I like to think about about it just to simplify it is at the end of um, a period you start this phase called the uh, follicular phase it's when in the ovary there's a new egg trying to form uh, and create that egg to then go into the um, uterus and during that phase you know women feel amazing it's because you get that rise in 
from zero hormones, you start to get this rise in estrogen, but also testosterone. And this is a very, very important thing. Women actually have more testosterone in their body than estrogen pretty much at any given time. A lot of that testosterone is then converted into estrogen, but that just shows us just how, an imp how much of an important hormone that is. And in, like, actually, when I do experience that kind of rise in testosterone in the um, follicular phase, I feel amazing. Like, I feel I can tackle anything. Like, give me five, ten different tasks. I can do all of them, and I want to do more. I can get out. I can be active. I can work out. I feel like that hot girl, you know, <laughs> as a way to put it. But that only lasts for only, like, a couple of days at most. Then once you reach the peak of ovulation, which I'll get into a bit, um, things start to go downhill from there. Your estrogen starts to decrease, your testosterone starts to decrease, and you get a rise in this hormone called progesterone. And that signifies the start of your uh, luteal phase. Luteal phase is just the second half after ovulation. And this is when your egg is implanted into your uterus and your body's just then... Uh, thinking, okay, now we have an egg, just in case it gets fertilized, let's release the hormone progesterone, which is progestation. So you start to get these symptoms that are typically associated with pregnancy or early pregnancy. Mm. So you get very large sore breasts um, and tenderness there. You start to feel more fatigued and tired and sleepy. You want to eat more. Mm. You gain way more fluid, fluid and water retention. So that makes you heavier on the scales. Uh, your skin quality decreases as well. So, you know, larger pores or like more oils on the skin. And you start and the moods absolutely change. So from a time when you feel like you can do everything, you can be that girl. Suddenly you don't understand why you're experiencing more irritability. Um, you're more tired. You lack the energy to do things. You might be more likely to snap at people, you know, rather than, give a level and rational response and that could that can be different in severity for lots of women some women just have naturally you know disbalance in hormones um, and other women who have very balanced hormones very balanced cycles they will be less likely to experience this so in a way it, it's not considered to be normal per se, but um, many, many women experience it, particularly those with conditions like endometriosis, which affects almost a million women in Australia, which is just a condition where uh, the lining that sheds in your uterus that, you know, produces um, blood at the end of, mm. um, um, during a period, it actually detaches and attaches to other parts of your reproductive system, like your ovaries, sometimes on the bowel, it has actually been found in the noses and like the heart tissue of some women. Mm. And at the end of the month, when, you know, the lining sheds, it also sheds in those areas causing severe pain because it's also tearing apart your bowel. It's tearing apart your nose or your heart or wherever it, it oh, latches God. onto. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been a massive um, response from the Commonwealth government in the national women's health um, strategy, you know, pouring in millions of dollars into it just to help fix this issue because um, actually a, an interesting statistic for you is that about $9.7 billion annually um, is lost in the Australian economy due to endometriosis. And that's just things due really? to like productivity loss. Yeah, productivity loss oh. um, in the workplace, you know, medical costs. It's a massive, massive number. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Oh, do that. That, really, that really paints the picture there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so many things can go wrong and that plays into that kind of cyclical basic structure and can exaggerate certain things or mask mm. certain things. Whereas for me, what I find interesting, and of course, there are hormonal disbalances for men as well, but essentially what your bodies are doing is every day um, the testes are producing the same you know, number of sperm, the same number of testosterone, every same amount of testosterone every single day. So you're essentially mm. quite constant mm -hmm. in your moods, yeah. in your, the way that you function. The only thing that can really change that is diet, exercise, stress. 
um, which impacts women the same way, but we also have overlying that like a constant change of hormones every 28, you know, 25 to 35 days. Mm. Yeah. What, what, what you shared there, uh, Anna, sorry, Mike, <laughs> you were going to jump in. Um, I was going to say, Anna, like, um, there's a, a, a friend of mine that was having really, really bad, um, sort of period pain, um, and cramps. And as someone that got told that, you know, their period pain was normal and they should suck it up for 10 years, ended up finding that they had stage four, uh, endometriosis, um, and having to require surgery for it. I guess the question there is, um, you know, this is obviously someone that's, you know, kind of sidelined their period pain, being told like, you know, suck it up, it's normal, et cetera. And I imagine that's the case with a lot of women out there that are experiencing pretty heavy period pain, uh, blood loss, cramps in different parts of their body, and just sort of being told that it's normal. And I guess the question here is, there's, there would obviously be a lot of uh, women listening in as well. Like, what are ways that they can sort of ad- advocate for themselves in a way that doesn't seem as if they've just gone to Dr. Google? to get all the responses, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really great point because um, I myself have been, have someone that has had severe menstrual pain. At one point during the lockdown, when I wasn't exercising properly, it got so bad that I was, you know, I was vomiting and Mm. I felt that bad that my body just had that kind of response to it. And Obviously, at that point, I was was like, no, this is not normal. No matter what you tell me, this Mm. is I should not be in this much pain. And this is not a quality of life I want to live every single, you know, month. Mm. And we have it is a myth. You're right. It is a myth. We've been told that, you know, your pain is normal. You're supposed to experience this pain. But then the question is, what severity is that pain? Are you lying in bed completely immobile? You can't move, you can't eat, you can't drink, or can you not even walk? That kind of pain. Or is it just like a slight slight bit of pain signaling that yes, your um, you know, period's about to start and but you can go on with the rest of your day. Mm. Um for those who are experiencing some kind of debilitating pain where you're immobile or you can't do certain daily tasks that you should be able to do, please take it from me, not as a medical professional, but as someone who just implores you to advocate for yourself. Go see medical help and let them try to investigate what's wrong with you. What's the issue here? And do not let them gaslight you into saying Mm. like, oh, you should just suck it up or like you have a very low pain tolerance. No. For something like endometriosis, as Sunny mentioned, it can take up to six years just to get a diagnosis. But the pain can be anywhere from you're 12 years old. Um, But the problem with endo, I think, is the fact that it can only be diagnosed surgically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That is a pretty big decision for you to make, whether or not you want to go under. Although it is a minimally invasive surgical, you know, procedure, they just um, do a keyhole camera right into your belly button, so you don't even see a scar. But yeah, um, not many people would want to go through that, which mm-hmm. I do understand. Um, but there are many other conditions that can be tested for, such as PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is much mm-hmm. simpler. It's just um, a hormonal test, a blood test, and a pain you know, severity scale, I think is involved. My take home there is essentially be an advocate for yourself. Do not let other people gaslight you into saying, no, you just have a low pain tolerance or you're supposed to feel this because the research shows actually, no, you're supposed to just feel mild pain. So you should be able to still function daily. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. I, I feel like I'm a student in class listening to this. I feel like I'm I'm learning so much. Um, so so why do you think, why do you think that this is such an important, like it's so important for men to have this type of knowledge? Yeah. So the major thing here is that I think it increases the understanding between men and women in the mm. sense that you don't just see each other as stereotypes anymore. Yeah. You see each yeah. other as you're going through something right now. Um, I'll be there for you. Like rather than being, 
Millicent bystander in the corner, (laughs) you'll be more so understanding of like, oh, maybe they um, had this reaction or they're feeling this way, not because of me, not because of something I did, yeah, but Mm. because, you know, they're just a bit more, they they just need some Mm. space or they need some time alone. They need to think through things a bit more. Um, I know personally, from my perspective, um, my during the times when I'm a bit of a lower mood, um, just before the end of my cycle in the um, luteal phase, he gets so, so worried that he's done something wrong. He comes up mm. to me every two seconds like, are you sure you're not mad at me? Have I done anything? Mm. Are you okay? Mm. In the first like couple of months in our relationship and now it's more so a, oh, I see that you're feeling down. Let me just be there for you. I understand. Like, what can I do to make you feel better so there's less anxiety and stress in the relationship i feel like men a lot of the times have this anxiety of like what did i do wrong why is she like this do i leave her alone do i talk to her like what's happening at least if you're aware that this is a very temporary state that she's feeling a bit low maybe right now um that can just even yeah help you and your your own anxiety Mm. yeah just a uh, question they... to both of you in general, I think. Have you either of you ever experienced that kind of anxiety where you're like, oh, I don't know what's happening. Why is she like this? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can go first. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like, there's definitely been periods where like so that's not a pun <laughs> like periods yeah. as in like <laughs> yeah. uh yeah there's been there's been there's been points at which like yeah like oh like have I done something but I think as to your point like becoming more and more aware that this can last more than a couple of days and that's completely okay it's just how can you play the role of supporting them and helping them which I think honestly like I could play a better role in doing that um and you know if we do get the chance to touch on that it would be awesome to touch on that but um I do feel as if like yeah, like I, I could always do more. And I think to your point, not seeing each other as stereotypes, but actually just seeing each other as like friends or human beings, you know, going through experiences, I think really helps to unravel that. So um, yeah, I know that was a question, but also probably just a reflective point for me to probably play a better role in, in doing that and understand. And I think once you develop that sense of empathy of what the other person is going through, I think that will definitely help guide a lot of the actions you follow through with after yeah to cut in there actually um i just read an abc article the other day that there's a proposed policy for Mm. menstrual and menopause leave um, which will provide leave for one day a month Mm. um, or 12 days a year i'm wondering how that exactly is going to pan out like do you have to have a diagnosis of a Mm. you know menstrual condition like you know uh, dysmenorrhea which is just heavy and painful periods or endometriosis or not or if it's just given to all women Mm. but I'm really glad that they have that because I have told my employer that like look there's going to be some some days where I'm just like not mobile like I cannot work Mm. like my concentration's gone I'm in lots of pain I I can't like go to work and they were really understanding but they were but they're also female so my female, you know, boss, she understands what's happening. So if you have a male boss, it might be harder to explain to them why you need to take a day off work just because you have, you know, lower abdominal pains. It, it It's a bad look sometimes, I think. And that's also plays into why historically, I guess, women are less likely to be employed. Do, do you think there's a stigma behind women's health and, and how this may be perceived in, in the workplace? Yeah, so, you know, yeah. From actually talking to a lot of my female friends, we don't know what we don't know, it turns out. So just very basic things about women's health, you know, our cycles, cyclical things, hormones, and um, things to do with fertility. I'm talking about all these things, about all these things I've found out, i researched, and they're just looking at me with blank faces like, what? Are you serious? Um. And also, they're also a part of the same kind of, I guess, narrative that you guys hear that, you know, all those things are taboo, we shouldn't talk about it. And so even we fall under that, like, oh, I shouldn't really talk about it or I don't want to. For me personally, and it's also kind of what I'm advocating for the female listeners here is just don't care about it. (laughs) It's only weird or awkward or taboo if you make it that way. 
it's you know it's something that affects you more than the other person if you're in severe pain and you can't go to work then just be honest and stay home like they will be able to deal with whatever repercussions um you need to like you know heal yourself and put yourself first because you know as we mentioned before with conditions like endometriosis it's not anything trivial there's obviously a lot of misguidance or misconceptions that exist out there um, when it comes to women's health. Like, what are the things that have surprised you the most with the things you hear? Whether that's like out there in the research, out there in the media, um, or even just within your own friendship circle, that is just simply, yeah, like wrong. <laughs> oh my God. My favorite question now to ask like anyone, particularly guys, is just how long is ovulation? Also, firstly, just to give a bit of context, mm. ovulation is um, the time at which a woman's actually fertile. So when you can actually get pregnant, you know, if the sperm meets the egg, mm. you will get pregnant. Um, before mm. that, um, you're only just making that egg. And after that, you, you know, you can't get pregnant. Done. Mm. And so my mm. favorite question, again, yeah, is to ask how long does ovulation, that time with, during which you're fertile, actually last? And I asked you guys this before, and I had some really interesting answers. Oh, very interesting. We had something in the days, I think, or weeks. Or three years. Oh, yeah, three years, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Constantly on heat. <laughs> no, the ranges I've got have been like three days to like a week or something, like super, super long. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, it's only 12 to 24 hours. And they're like, what? Literally, Jeez. it's such a tiny, tiny window. Mm-hmm. Um. And the reason why that's actually so significant is oh, there are actually many, many reasons, but I think the most surprising one is um, how quickly couples decide to go into IVF after they've been trying and trying to have a child. And they just was like, they're just thinking, okay, I guess we're infertile. Let's just go through IVF. And they spent thousands of dollars um, inject a bunch of hormones into themselves just, you know, to, um, stimulate ovulation when in reality you just had to kind of you know time your conception you just had to time when you're ovulating and many women actually don't know when they're ovulating or they don't understand what's happening when it's happening when in fact um, I would actually advocate so much to just understand this understand when you're ovulating look for the signs and symptoms which i think is out of the scope for this particular podcast but we can provide some resources for you a bit later Uh, if you understand when you're ovulating you understand when you're having that high when you're full of energy when you should like plan to do things that require lots of you know brain power um you'll understand Um, If you're having a normal cycle, if you're having an abnormal cycle, that also probably means your hormones are completely off. Your sleep is probably not good. You could have thyroid problems. You could have metabolic issues. Uh, It's very, very important to understand what's happening with you. And also, if we don't know what's happening to us, how are we supposed to relay that to the men in our lives? How are we... Why are we expecting men to be participants in our lives when we actually don't even know what's happening with ourselves? We're kind of like, you know, demanding something, but we don't even know what we need. In reality, what we need is to just, you know, teach ourselves first, become educated, and then introduce what role we would like the men in our lives to have. How they can support us, how they can understand us, how they can help us. Yeah it's definitely opening my eyes to like how how much by way of sort of nature you know these things can affect women yeah definitely and i can tell you there's nothing better than having a partner that for me personally nothing better than having a partner that understands what's happening with you and does not put any pressure onto you or does not allow you to put any pressure onto yourself i think is the bigger um issue here um I just have a story that I got permission from my friend to tell because it's a bit personal and harrowing, but I'll leave her name out. Um, Just to kind of show you the pressure that women put on themselves in relationships. Um, So she has a very open and transparent relationship with her partner, her boyfriend. Um, But because reproductive issues are so heavily, you know, 
put pressure on women and we have so many more contraceptive options available to be fair you know we have the pill the um iud and like this like implant rod that you can get in your arm so there's so many different things but note that they're all hormonal and that's a completely different can of worms i won't go into now but it completely changes the way that you you know, interact with the world. It changes that cyclical nature that we talked about earlier, but not for the better. Uh, but with the story, so this, my friend, she's very well educated in this area. She, know, you know, same as me, watches all the podcasts, uh, sorry, listens to all the podcasts, watches all the videos, reads all the articles. And she landed on, I need to um, take control of my reproductive rights I don't want to you know constantly stress and worry that I might be pregnant at the end of each month and I'm going to take this pressure onto myself and get myself a copper IUD now an IUD is something that uh, invasive so you put inside of your body and keep it there so it goes all the way up into the uterus and ideally a gynecologist or a surgeon should insert it for you um, and it can stay there for up to, you know, 10, 15 years. So it's a great option for a lot of women who just, you know, don't want the worry and stress of getting pregnant. Um, and because it's copper, it doesn't have those hormones in it. So it shouldn't mess with you hormonally either. Uh, and so she goes in, so she goes to um, get this implant in, uh, and but it's she's getting it just from her GP. While GPs may have the qualifications, obviously they don't have the rigorous training that, you know, gynecologists or surgeons have. And it's recommended to her to go in during her period. So she'll be bleeding. And so when she, as soon as she gets the implant, uh, sorry, not the implant, the IUD in, um, she can, you know, have as much unprotected sex as she wants and she won't get pregnant from it and so that was the priority there so just to make sure she is you know safe from pregnancy for the rest of the month so she goes in and firstly to get to the uterus you need to go through the cervix and the cervix is I guess this how would I describe it it's like this long long like I guess rod that's um that goes into the uterus so you have like your you know initial opening and then you have the cervix that's also completely closed all the time except for when you know you're on your period and you get rid of the blood so it doesn't allow anything in there and it's very important during pregnancy to make sure bacteria doesn't get up in there anything else foreign doesn't get in there and hurt the baby and so you might have heard in lots of different shows when they say you're five centimeters dilated ten centimeters dilated that refers to the cervix that's kind of opening up for the delivery of the baby um, but to get the IUD IUD in there you need to kind of open up that cervix and for a woman that hasn't had a child before it's very very tight it stays closed so the way you open it is you get these rods these little kind of plastic rods and you just slowly slowly open open it up you poke it and open it up the the little hole that's there um and so when she was getting the procedure what happened was it seems like the GP wasn't very well trained that either hit some hit something poorly they didn't hit the right place and she ended up just they ended up just sending her home but when she got home I, I saw her face she was completely pale completely pale there's no life and she's incredibly anxious and worried and what happened she was bleeding non-stop a lot of blood like if you imagine a pad I don't know if you've seen one long strips um every hour she was soaking through the whole thing completely and so um, hours later I'm just like you have to go to the hospital go to the hospital please and finally she went to the hospital in the middle of the night um still bleeding through everything like her her underwear her pants everything like it was an insane amount of blood um she ended up nearly having to have a transfusion a blood transfusion because they just couldn't stop the bleeding and all that happened was is just poor training from this one gynecologist uh sorry gp who said this is completely safe you can do this whatever um she didn't actually end up getting it put in either because there was just too much bleeding and they couldn't um open up the cervix well enough and she was so traumatized by it all that she's just kind of rejecting any forms of contraception outside of you know the you know male contraception so something like condoms at the moment um 
and we found out later after doing some research that the cervix is actually softest when you're ovulating, so mid-cycle. What I mean by soft is it kind of relaxes a little bit to allow, you know, sperm to get into to um, um, to get to the egg. So it's naturally softer and much more gentle, and the, it'll be much much easier to open it with any instrumental tools. But what the GP did there, and what you know, modern medicine is telling us here is that you know contraception is much more important than the comfort of the woman in this case. So they understand that the cervix is softer in mid-cycle, but they still chose to recommend the procedure at the end of the cycle. And so for me, this what this story tells me is firstly, the pressure that women put onto themselves of I need to I need to do this for contraception, like, you know, something like barrier method contraception is too uncomfortable for everyone, too much fuss in the moment, in the heat of the moment. And secondly, it tells me that like I mentioned, the comfort of the woman is kind of put second. Mm. I was going to say, is that a reflection like this GPs, you know, like GPs, yeah, I'm I'm not trying to um, have a go at GPs. There's some great GPs out there. But the fact that help and seeking medical advice extends beyond a GP, because I think a lot of people get a lot of comfort just from speaking to a GP and going back home. Um, but is that always the best mode of getting advice or you know are there certain like you mentioned the word gynecologist um you know are there other practitioners that you know women maybe don't know of that they can go and you know seek appointments with and and have a chat with because at least like from what i understand with especially with hindu tradition there's like are you ready ways or natural ways about going about then there's gynecologist so you know what's that world look like for women that want to learn more and yeah speak to someone i guess in effect you bring up actually an amazing point because personally what I saw and what many women see is just you have a GP who directs you to a gynecologist and that's it. Mm. But modern medicine, I this is my own personal opinion. Again, please don't take this as medical advice. Modern medicine has become much too focused on therapies which are like medical therapies you know things like drugs um, surgeries and like these things which take away the holistic nature mm -hmm. of health because we have to remember health is very intrinsically related to diet to the amount of sleep you get to exercise just very core fundamental pillars which affect our day-to-day -day life men and women alike um and there's medicine which addresses those points, which makes it a core focus. Mm. Like you mentioned them, um, Ayurvedic medicine, mm. naturopath naturopaths also, and Chinese medicine are three core, like, I guess, oh, I don't know if I call them health professionals. They're still considered a bit weird in the mm. medical field. Yeah. <laughs> but they can definitely, I guess you can call them lifestyle and health and wellness kind of um professionals who can give you advice um, and who can change your lifestyle for the better um, and just anecdotally from hearing from my friends who have had very painful and irregular cycles or have had a diagnosed condition that they've been unable to manage with medical intervention have found relief and actually better results from going to these I guess alternative mm. medical um, professionals yeah you know, who are the people that you seek advice from in your own life when it comes to your own, like taking charge of your own health? I think the first person that I ever spoke about this was my mother. And I know that there can be a lot of barriers between, you know, talking to your mother about, you know, women's health or reproductive health and certain cultures, you know, people mm. of cold backgrounds. Um, just talking to my friends who have a, you know, Indian background, mm they say that they barely ever talk to the mothers about that yeah. stuff. Yeah. I think, do you kind of relate to, well, not about women's health, yeah. obviously, but like your own kind of, I guess, more personal health. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Zero. Yeah, definitely. Zero. I don't know about yeah. you, Meg. My absolutely zilch. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so I would say my background, which is Belarusian, um, I wouldn't say we're super conservative or anything like that, but we're not super open either. Mm. I think I just kind of lucked out that my mother was someone who understood that you shouldn't be getting your information from just like, you know, a government website and mm. that's it. There's, it's yeah. still such a very 
personal thing like that's very intrinsically related to experience you know the exactly. relationships yeah. you have with people um, and as someone who's experienced all of that she can then relay her knowledge and her wisdom to me and explain to me like you know it's nothing wrong with you it's just something um, that you know many women have to deal with um, mm. so I think yeah my mother's the main one and after that uh, I think a lot of the knowledge I've had to gain has been self-motivated. So I've had to actually actively go out and seek it because it's not readily available in a consumable format, you know, in schools or in workplaces. So you have to actually develop an interest and find the right resources to actually find out more about women's health, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. You might have a view on this. You might not. But um, has any of sort of your research or your, like, yeah, the learnings that you've had kind of gone into the world of like the morning after pill in terms of like how that can affect people emotionally and, and physically and mentally, like, yeah, across that spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Starting from, I guess, a psychological perspective, it's kind of half and half. Some people see the morning after pill as like a safety net, as like, oh, if anything happens, you know, we can just kind of prevent pregnancy using this it's all good and I think sometimes in in a way it can in an unhealthy relationship it can kind of pressure some partners to be like you know it's all good like if anything you have the morning after pill um, but of course again that puts a lot of the pressure and effects onto the woman as someone who will have to experience that kind of feeling of having to go to the pharmacy in a panic or you know just feeling that stigma of like actually getting getting the pill um and then feeling the effects of it on your body because it's from what i've heard it can be fairly painful like it is the lining you know shedding so it's the same pain you would experience during a period a bit more severe um but also it can be completely ineffective if you're already ovulating so all the morning after pill does is it prevents ovulation. So if you um, say had unprotected sex on day, I don't know, day 10, and you usually ovulate on day 15, then you should be okay. So it prevents your ovulation. That means you'll be fertile, not on day 15 now, but day 20. So if you have unprotected sex again, that means you will probably still get pregnant from that because all you did was delay ovulation. And yeah, again, if you have unprotected sex during ovulation, so that 12 to 24 hour period, um, and you take the pill, it will have no effect whatsoever and you will get pregnant. Although, although from the statistics I've read, um, getting pregnant during ovulation, even while ovulating, um, it's still a one in three chance. So it's not 100% guaranteed. Wow. It's still one third. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually a bit lower mm. than I thought as well. I thought it was like, you know, once yeah. it happens, it happens. That's it. But, you know, couples, yeah. if couples are trying to have a baby actively for, you know, three months, only like at the end of, say, those three months, they're like pretty likely to get, get pregnant. pregnant. Mm. And, uh, and what are the physical signs of when you're ovulating? And, and does this, and I, I'm sorry if you've covered this before, but, does this happen at a particular time every month? Is it like something which happens at regularly or is it, yeah, I'm not too sure. Yeah. So if a woman has a completely regular cycle, like she knows like on the dot, I'm going to have my period like a day 30 and she has no underlying health issues, then it's very regular. Yeah. It's say, for example, on day 12, day 12, you ovulate. Um, the signs are actually pretty clear and a lot of women see these signs, but they just kind of ignore them. So the biggest sign, and this is going to get into some very technical language here, cervical fluid, which is just literally just like the fluid that, you know, naturally um, comes out of the cervix from the uterus. And, you know, you might just see it, um, you might see it externally, like on your underwear or somewhere. And many women have relayed to me, have told me like, oh, yeah, like once a month I see this incredibly 
gooey, like egg whitey stuff that's super sticky and it's so disgusting and I don't want to show and tell anybody about it. I'm such a disgusting human being and I'm like, gal pal, you're just ovulating. You're not disgusting. It's okay. It means you're it means you're fertile. But there's there's actually been quite a few women who've come to me like have gone to doctors or something, being like, There's something wrong with me, I must have an infection when in reality it's just your body's trying to tell you you're you know, you're fertile, you're ovulating. Um, and yeah, some other signs, that's probably the clearest sign. Um, another really common sign, which I think is really common for Roman, like Catholics. I remember being in school and hearing that Catholics like don't use contraception at all. They use the temperature mm. method. And I'm like, oh, no wonder they have like 13 kids. Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of thing. But yeah, the temperature thing is like, in the um, follicular phase, so the first half of your cycle, you are like normal temperature. But when progesterone comes in in the second half, it actually spikes your temperature up by like half a degree. So by 0 0.5 to 0 0.7 degrees or something like that. And so if you're taking your temperature consistently at the same time every single day, you will see this like massive spike in the temperature chart reading. And that means that you have actually finished ovulating. And now your progesterone is taking over, which is when you combine those two things, like, you know, the cervical fluid going into this like egg whitey, very clear consistency and the temperature, you can be pretty much certain that you've ovulated unless you have underlying conditions like PCOS. Being aware of that as a woman, like firstly, takes away that kind of like, oh, I'm so disgusting. Why is my body doing this kind of? feeling um and second secondly it does help in relationships of re reducing that anxiety of like oh my gosh am I pregnant am I not pregnant like what's happening with me you can just kind of like relax and enjoy um you know the time you're spending with your partner after you ovulate because you know you can't get pregnant mm -hmm. yeah that's, that's a good point y you mentioned uh, relationships there and I think um f from our perspective it, it sort of brings up another point just around the relationship that physical and mental health have together. Um, and from a, from a woman's perspective, I'd, I'd love to know, are there any tells or factors that play into uh, a woman's mental health that might be different from uh, a male's mental health? I mean, from a, from a male perspective, I think there's, there's so much going on in, in the world in, in, in terms of uh, dialogue around... Um, what it means to be a man and how that how men should act and how this might affect um, a, a male's uh, a man's mental health but it'll be good to know like what what are some of the factors that that um, that you see from a woman's perspective particularly from that physical health perspective and how that uh, relates to, to mental health so I've completely butchered the answer to the asking of this question by the way I kind of I think that yeah. kind of helps to scope things a little bit I guess just from a, a personal perspective um e even now when I'm just so like aware of what's happening I feel like I'm you know very very onto like I understand what's happening to myself I can identify I'm feeling a bit low because of you know my estrogen's gone my testosterone's gone I'm just you know I'm just riding it out even though I'm aware of what's happening to me it doesn't take away the fact that I have to still experience it you know mm. so for a soul like I guess five days every single month I feel in like periods of incredible lows akin to those um, who would experience depression like you know you just don't you really don't want to do any mm -hmm. tasks you barely want to move around or socialize like concentration's just gone and once when you had very positive thoughts about something like say uh well this is applicable to me about like moving into state you're just like yes let's let's do this like this is so exciting like I'll do everything but once you hit like a hormonal like low even though you're still super excited about something and you understand that you're experiencing this hormonal low all your thoughts suddenly flip and it's very hard to control mm. them suddenly you're thinking about the same thing in the span of like one week as oh, I don't deserve this, I'm so terrible at this, it's not going to work out, or, you know, it's going to be so difficult. Exactly same situation, within one week, such polarizing thoughts. And even though, again, I understand what's happening to me because I'm aware of this, the experience of it, I can't 
take away. I have to ride through it. Hmm. And this actually is exactly where a supportive partner or a supportive, like, you know, I guess not a supportive man in your life, but even if it's a brother, say, just someone who understands that, like, you know, oh, suddenly she's a negative Nancy about everything. It's like, mm, she doesn't want to be. She has to kind of go through this just because hormones are dictating her life at this point. And I guess there's some negative language around that as well. Like, oh, she's just so hormonal all the time. She is, but she doesn't understand, but she doesn't understand what's happening with her either. Like, it's hard to write out. It's difficult to write out that wave. I was just like, yeah, I just like to like put that in as like my own perspective. It's it's difficult for us to write out that wave as well, especially when you don't know what's happening with you. Yeah, it's a really good response. So can I just say, and I'm just reflecting on this now. I've asked some really stupid questions on this podcast. I feel like they're so they're so basic. Yeah, no, you, you're, you know, po- you're probably asking questions that other people haven't asked. Or other people are also struggling to articulate themselves. You're not being a dumb dude or anything. Like so many women mm. as well, they just don't know these things. Yeah. Like literally, like, like I said, like whenever I talk to friends or just like, you know, new female, you know, acquaintances and the topic happens to be wrung up, they all ask exactly the same questions. Exactly the same. But it's just, yeah, it's, it's such an important topic just because, yeah, it encapsulates the whole idea of you don't know what you don't know and even just doing small like small little leaps forward such as just introducing certain issues not necessarily going through the whole spectrum of all issues but just like being like hey this is a thing please just even go and read about it or listen about it find out more about it and it will improve your life so so much because it's something that's completely again understudied undervalued under um appreciated even from a personal perspective um yeah thank you so much for being a listening ear and asking all the questions we love questions here yeah yeah thank thanks again anna all right thank you guys thank you so much for having me on thanks anna and that's a wrap for this episode. If you're enjoying our conversations, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All the conversations are recorded in video, so check us out on Instagram and Facebook at our handle at Bottled Up Oz. Drop us a comment or a message if any of these conversations resonate with you. And most importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who might need it. So as always, this is Bottled Up. Thanks for being part of our family and see you next time.